Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, Foreign Policy's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points, we use them to explain what's going on in the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, a deputy editor here at Foreign Policy, joining you from Berlin. With us, as always, is FP economics columnist and Columbia University professor Adam Tooze. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Hi. So we were off for Thanksgiving last week. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, Adam. We did indeed, yeah. We were on the Bahamas rebuilding this house of ours. And uh, it's quite a shock to be back in the cold of New York. Oh, goodness. Can you find turkey in the Bahamas? Is that something one does over there? Oh, yeah. It may once have been a British colony, but but it's too close to Florida. So it's uh, it's uh, it's completely Americanized and full of turkeys and cranberry sauce and God knows what. Okay. I managed to find a turkey or a friend did here in Germany as well. So, you know, it's it's always doable. Uh, in any case, we are back. And as always, we're going to be doing two segments. Uh, the second part of the show, we'll be looking at a data point that explains just how devastating the drop in tourism has been during the pandemic. I think that number is going to surprise everyone. But first, we want to get into the news data point. So the news data point for this week is 4.99%. That is the amount the Iranian national economy shrunk by in 2020. Okay, so you may be wondering how is that tied to this week's news? Well, you might have heard the Iranian government has been meeting this week in Vienna with the P5 plus one. That's the United States, China, Russia, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom. Could the 2015 Iran nuclear deal be restored? That's what's at stake today as representatives from Iran, the U.S., and several European nations meet in Vienna. European diplomats will serve as intermediaries between Iran and the U.S. It's, I think, the seventh round of talks aimed at restoring the Iranian nuclear deal that the Trump administration unilaterally abandoned back in 2018. It's pretty clear what the United States and its allies want out of these talks. They want a reliable way of ensuring that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons capability. It's also clear what Iran wants. They want the lifting of the economic sanctions that are basically unilaterally imposed by Washington at this point. I mentioned that big 4.99% economic contraction in Iran this year. But the Iranian economy has pretty much been shrinking ever since the Trump administration withdrew from the deal and imposed what it called its maximum pressure campaign. Again, that was about three or four years ago. So the most obvious ways to talk about these nuclear negotiations are probably through the lens of high diplomacy, military strategy, that kind of thing. But it struck me that at the heart of all this are U.S. economic sanctions, and that's a perfect topic for an economics podcast like ours. So I thought you and I could work through how to think about sanctions, Adam. I mean, what they are, whether they work. But to start with, 
Adam, maybe you could help explain how severe is the impact of these U.S. sanctions on Iran right now? It's pretty terrible, I think. If you look at a graph of Iran's GDP, uh, it just doesn't look like the pattern followed by any other part of the world economy. In, in 2019, so after Trump had made his announcements and America withdraws, um, Iran's economy nosedives trade with its major Western trading partner other than China, so this is Europe, um, falls by 80% practically in a single year. Iran's own government in these negotiations that have restarted is seeking compensation for what they, of course, regard as a sort of unilateral American violation of the 2015 agreement to the tune of $200 billion. Um, So in an economy, the GDP of which is somewhere between $200 and $600 billion a year in terms of GDP, it's asking for a huge slice of GDP back, if you like, to compensate it for the, the hit that it suffered. Um, if that sounds like a vast amount, and, and it's no doubt a bargaining position, but but everyone agrees that if you take the Iranian economy in the first quarter of 2021, so earlier this year, it was at the same level as it was in the first quarter of 2012. So that's a lost decade. I mean, the Obama administration in the EU first began their campaign of serious economic pressure on Iran in the summer of 2010. And since then, basically, there's been no overall growth in the Iranian economy. It's bumped up and down, but we're back to where it was. And in Iran, that stagnation really matters because it's a country with a really rapidly growing population. So it needs growth every year to stand still. And instead, what we've seen is a progressive fall in GDP per capita in Iran over that decade by about 25% in real terms. So what that means is it goes from being one of the richest countries in the World Bank's category of what are called upper middle income countries, so the better off Middle Eastern states and China. It goes from being one of the richest to being the poorest at this point. Okay, that that actually does sound pretty bad in terms of of the impact of these sanctions. How about the effects that this is having on Iranian public opinion? I mean, presumably that's that's the whole point of these sanctions to force some change of mind politically in the country, but you could also imagine different kinds of reactions. You could think of sanctions as creating patriotic resistance, maybe causing kinds of new distributional battles in the country or or just kind of maybe just hopelessness. So, I mean, what kind of political effect are these sanctions having that you can tell? I mean, it's very mixed. It's very complex. It's constantly changing. And, you know, us on the outside and me not being in any way an Iran expert, we're not particularly well placed to judge and make these calls. But you do see a pattern over time. So one option is belligerence. And that was really the position of Ahmadinejad, uh, you know, elected in 2005 as president. He was known as, as a principalist, right, defending the principles of the Islamic revolution against outside pressure, using that as an explicit politics, doubling down on self-sufficiency if necessary when oil exports became difficult after 2008, shifting Iran out of crude oil into refining so as to open up new markets. He also more imaginatively launched his so-called justice shares plan, which involved privatizing chunks of public companies by handing out share certificates to 40 million Iranians, building a kind of popular base for his for his government. Uh, on the other hand, I think there's very little doubt that as those EU, US, UN sanctions have begun to bite over the last decade, there is the reverse dynamic also of hopelessness, of outrage, and successive waves of protest have rocked Iran. Again, it's kind of important to emphasize that it isn't just sanctions which do this. These aren't 
just motivated by economics. Politics really matters. In the so-called green movement of 2009 through 11, it was a bubble outrage over a stolen election that was driving things. And Rouhani's election in 2013, however, I think was really motivated by a desire for change. Um, And that was the government which negotiated the way out of sanctions in 2015, when the agreement was done with the Europeans, the Obama administration, Russia, China. But it also set up the disillusionment that followed, right? Raising sanctions per se is not a panacea. It depends who benefits. And one of the things that was after 2015, when the lid comes off and the GDP numbers look good, is that the distribution distributional question within Iran suddenly becomes hugely salient. And there is a profound sense, I think, that the people who benefit most from the new regime of trade are state-owned companies, oil companies, supreme leader Khamenei's own personal financial empire is really the principal beneficiary. And so it's those kind of feelings which then vent themselves in what in recent years has been the most serious wave of protests to date, um, starting in December 2017, continuing on through November 2019, and, and at times engulfing the entire country. And that is as much as anything, as it were, a struggle within Iran between different groups, with folks indignant, particularly about the decision of the government to reduce subsidies for petrol prices. Ironically, in a country so rich in petrochemicals, uh, being able to afford gas is a is a key issue. We actually have some opinion, opinion poll data from inside Iran, uh, fragmentary, but, but, but quite real and consistent in its message. And one of the really striking things from it is that the overwhelming majority of Iranians polled blame and point the finger principally at internal corruption rather than sanctions as the source of Iran's problems. And very strikingly, the share attributing the problems to internal difficulties increases after 2018 when Trump reimposed sanctions. So the politics of this is much more complicated than you might imagine, perhaps. But how about the overall economic effects of these kinds of sanctions? I mean, does the rest of the world even notice when one country is isolated like this? Uh, I mean, a country the size of Iran. I mean, is there a measurable impact on growth outside of Iran when when these sanctions are imposed? And might this be why we only impose heavy sanctions on small, again, relatively marginal economic countries in the first place? I think that's right. I mean, the main global impact of sanctioning Iran is to remove a few million barrels per day in additional capacity from the oil markets. So at its peak, In the early 2000s, Iran was pumping 3.8 million barrels per day roundabout, which is very high level of production for a country of its size. Um, It's down in the one to two range right now. So that reduces the elasticity of the market and it helps Saudi and Russia in their um, high price strategy that they're pursuing right now. The, The immediate Economic impact is most severe in the region itself, because in the region, Iran is not a small player, right? With over 80 million inhabitants, without the sanctions, its economy would likely be in the same ballpark as Saudi Arabia or Turkey, um, you know, around the trillion dollar mark between 700 billion and a trillion dollars. And both of them, Saudi and Turkey, are members of the G20. So a, a poorer Iran under sanctions makes the entire region poorer. And there are big lost opportunities beyond um, the immediate region. It's not for nothing that the Europeans are so interested in a nuclear deal, because at the time of the Shah and after, Germany was a key trading partner for Iran. Um, Tens of billions of dollars of business potentially are at stake there. 
But I think to your larger point, yes, it's hard to not to see here the, the cynical logic of great power politics at play. I mean, it's not by accident that the sanctions that the United States imposes against China are much more selective. Uh, the US is sanctioning individuals over the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and it's declared something amounting to an economic war on tech and microchips and so on. But crucially, what it's avoided is any blanket action on the financial side. And it's really through the blanket ban of financial transactions that America has progressively imposed since 2009 onwards that that Iran has been hit because it makes it toxic for anyone in the world economy to deal with Iran um, because you could find yourself on the end of very, very stiff American penalties. Yeah, I mean, this gets to the next question that I wanted to ask, which is just how severe are the current U.S. sanctions against Iran? I mean, has Washington really thrown the works at Iran here? Or, I mean, are the current sanctions fairly mild as far as as far as sanctions go? We can give a pretty precise answer to this, thanks to the work of the very influential Washington think tank, the Center for New American Security, CNAS, which is many of whose former members are in the Biden administration. And they've actually quantified America's sanctions measures over recent years. And in any one of those rankings, certainly in recent times, Iran comes top. I think in 2020, 43% of all sanctions designations applied by the US to any individuals or entities uh, were to Iranian actors. And that was up from the 2019 level. But that's really what the Trump administration meant by maximum pressure. Um, the US really has dramatically wide ranging capacities to make economies squirm because it can affect your entire financial system, the entire logistical apparatus. It can make it virtually impossible for anyone to do business with you. And we're talking really serious penalties here. So in 2014, the French bank BNP Paribas paid a $8.9 billion fine. $8.9 billion fine for violating US sanctions on Iran. Commerzbank, Credit Agricole, UBS have all paid huge fines to uh, the Americans for uh, Iran sanction violations. That's also the basis under which the Americans were pursuing Huawei initially um, for violations of these unilaterally declared measures on the American side. Interesting to know that there are degrees of harshness here when it comes to maximum pressure. But this also then raises the question of what the Iranian government can do in response when the United States is really throwing the book at them like this. I mean, can it get closer to other countries? I mean, does it have any other options that you can think of? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a key regional player. And so there's plenty of people who are willing to, you know, get into bed with the Iranians. Uh, first up, Russia and China. Um, in March 2021, Iran and China signed a 25-year strategic partnership, which is significant, no doubt. But as with generally the case with these kind of deals with China, the question is what it really amounts to. There's certainly a willingness on the Chinese part to buy you know, discounted Iranian oil, which, which they take. Um, and the Iranians are grateful that they take it because they can't sell it to anyone else. More direct and intense is the effect in the immediate region. And this is really kind of bitterly ironic, because though the headline uh, motivation for the sanctions is the nuclear effort to try and restrict uh, Iran's nuclear program, the secondary aim more or less explicitly acknowledged in the US is to limit Iran's regional influence. Um, since 1979, the US has been locked in a geopolitical struggle with Iran. 
And the question is, can sanctions be used to limit Iran's influence in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen? And the question there is, as it were, what the relationship is between the sanctions measures and the influence that Iran has regionally. And we can actually put numbers on this. So we can we actually have a pretty clear idea of the scale of Iran's covert operations, because the Iranians speak about it openly in parliament, for instance. So backing Assad's regime in Syria is thought to have cost Tehran about 20 to $30 billion over the last decade. So cash that out per year, that's a few billion dollars a year. And that's where you see the problem here, because Iran is spending, shall we say, four or five billion dollars a year on its overall covert uh, proxy wars in all of these locations. But the sanctions target an economy that when it's going at full throttle could be approaching a trillion dollars. So it's not only massively disproportionate, but it's also really unlikely to work. It's like hunting a mosquito with a shotgun, right? Because even if the Iranians are under massive pressure, they're going to be able to find the few billion dollars they need to budget for the Quds Force, their special forces units. They're going to be able to afford the spare oil tanker and tanker capacity to allow Hezbollah to deliver you know, petrol and diesel to, to, to Lebanon. It's, it's peanuts, right? You aren't going to really be able to leverage one to affect the other. And in the meantime, the huge pressure that you do to the Iranian economy means that Iran very deliberately goes out to build relationships with its neighbors of quite a substantial type. But that's the world that sanctions creates, right? It entrenches Tehran's influence and weight in its immediate neighborhood, even though the undeclared aim, in fact, under the Trump administration, the fairly overtly declared aim is precisely to roll back Iran's regional influence. Yeah, so this gets me thinking of a of a pretty broad question, but maybe maybe it would be a, a good place to finish up on, which is basically, do sanctions work? I mean, you're just placing the current sanctions in, in this broader national security context, and that gets me wondering about what it would even mean for them to work. I mean, I mean, all the implications for war and peace the implications for power more generally in the region and around the world i'm sorry to end on such a broad on a broad note adam but 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 you you inspired mm. it no i mean i think it's the right question and it's a difficult one to wrestle with really and it and it's a weighty question as well i mean there's something uncomfortable about pronouncing on this from the comfort of our position whilst decisions are being made that affect the lives of tens of millions of people in massively damaging ways as as as, as you're saying um, it's a means of indirect economic and financial pressure. Um, and it's, above all, for all its sophistication, very blunt. It's very indiscriminate in its effects. Um, does it work? Well, I mean, if the past experience with Iran is anything to go by, the essential thing is that actually has to be an off-ramp. So establish a clear relationship between sanctions and a treaty with specific conditions. And Iran, at least, would tend to suggest that that model can work. That is what the Obama administration did. That's what the Biden team will try to read to connect to. But it depends on, A, having that very specific goal on the side of the Americans and their allies. And it also depends on having a highly sophisticated counterparty on the Iranian side who can actually calculate the benefits in financial terms of making this move. So it's very unlikely to move for a true hermit economy like to North Korea. I mean, why should the North Koreans adjust by way of, you know, if what, what is the incentive that Wall Street is going to provide to North Korea? It's not there. So for Iran, it may work. It may not generalize. But if sanctions are envisioned 
as I think they came to be envisioned specifically under the Trump administration in broader terms as a way really of anathematizing a state, outlawing it, curbing its regional influence, ultimately envisioning regime change. I don't think that's merely a fantasy on the part of the hardliners in Tehran. Then they're a very blunt instrument indeed. Well, clearly these sanctions are uh, very technically sophisticated. Hopefully the people coming up with them are as strategically sophisticated In the meantime, we will turn to tourism in the next segment, but we will first take a break right here. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times, no, I've been more than a few times, Uh, pretty regularly I am called out by this coach in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me, and I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back to Ones and Twos. The second data point we have for you this week, as usual, is from beyond the headlines. It's 10.4%. That's the share of global GDP contributed by the travel and tourism industries. At least that was the share prior to the pandemic in 2019. A year later, in 2020, that dropped to 5.5%. And, you know, obviously amid all the pandemic lockdowns and the border closures. India has become the latest and largest country to introduce a nationwide lockdown in the fight against the coronavirus. The border between Canada and the U.S., closes to all non-essential travel. A huge pullback in travel and tourism last year, contributing to a $4.5 trillion loss in global GDP. Again, that's 10.4% of all economic activity in the world was related to tourism. I don't know. I feel comfortable saying that's a surprising statistic. 
I was hoping we could unpack what exactly that means. Um, but to start with, Adam, I-, I wonder if we have to offer some disclosures here. Your wife, Dana, she does work in the tourism industry, right? Yeah, Dana has a, a boutique travel company, Conley and & Silvers, and uh, it's it's her passion, and I have the privilege of going along as a, a bag carrier and lecturer sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Wine Roads and War Stories is uh, is the brand for our joint tours, and uh, folks should feel free to check out the website, Conley & Silvers. There we go. Um, yeah, and through Dana, I've gotten to know a lot of folks in the travel business and appreciate the logic of the business, and its importance for the people who both for those who travel, uh, seeing it up close over and over again, it kind of denatures it, right? Because if you do it yourself, it's, you know what it means, but watching other people and its impact on them is significant. But then also, of course, I've gotten to know dozens of people who work in the industry and to realize that it's a far bigger part of economic and social reality than we might imagine. I I think we kind of underestimate it because each of us use it separately through our own personal vacation, right? So if you think about it, we each have a slice, if we're fortunate, a couple of weeks a year that we take out. And that makes it seem like a small thing. But when you add together the several weeks that hundreds of millions of people all over the world every year devote to travel and tourism, then it adds up to something really rather gigantic. But um, it's confirmed by all sorts of things. We think tourism is about 8% of export earnings globally. So, you know, that that maps onto this kind of number. Huh. Okay, so maybe it's rounded up a bit. And otherwise, I was just going to say, I, I, I think even before we ever worked together, I think I saw one of the tours you were helping Dana with, I think in Scotland, I remember being intrigued by that. I think it involved touring some Scotch manufacturers. It did indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. And Culloden <laughs> Battlefield. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I missed it. Maybe at some point in the future, um, I'll, I'll manage to join one. But We should um, do a ones and twos road trip. <laughs> we could definitely do some of these from the road. I uh, wouldn't mind doing that with some scotch on hand. But I'm hoping maybe first again to get some context on how tourism got to be so economically significant. It's wealth. I think it really has to be wealth. In, wealth in the form of income to spend. So tourism in the form that we in the West know it probably has its origins in the so-called Grand Tour that English gents used to take uh, over the classical ruins of Italy in the 18th century, bringing back the objet, the statues, the artwork that litter country houses of uh, in Northern Europe. Um, wealth also in the form of changing means of transport. I mean, the Grand Tourists would go by it would take months and months and they would go by barge and boat and by horse and, and, and carriage. Um, but in the 19th century, of course, it's the railway that transforms the possibilities for long distance travel. You get the emergence of modern guidebooks. You get package tours. The first tourist companies like Thomas Cook, which recently went under, but was founded in the 1840s, organizing teetotal railway trips around Victorian England, guaranteed, you know, no vice on our holiday, please. Um, and then you also need time off from work. It's uh, another sign of, of wealth, if you like. In, in France, it was literally the Socialist Popular Front government of 1936 that introduced a paid one-week vacation and enabled the now traditional French habit of downing tools in August and going to the seaside to become a national tradition. There's some extraordinary newsreel films of working-class French people for the first time in their lives, stepping into and splashing around in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean that summer. So that's the moment when the holiday was invented for working class French people. And then you also have developments on the supply side. So not just money to travel and the means of transport and the time to burn, but places to go. 
Uh, and there were cultural destinations first. The Colosseum was, has always been dramatic, has always attracted visitors in Rome. But then you have the seaside resorts of the 18th century, which is more of an acquired taste. You've kind of got to decide that it's good for you and that, you know, sulfurous water might be healthy. So we see the spas of the late 18th century, Bath or Brighton in, in Britain. You have national parks, hunting, shooting and fishing. Coney Island was the home to Sea Lion Park, which apparently is the first enclosed amusement park in the world, opening in 1895. Miami Beach is incorporated as a municipality in 1915. And then on from there, the theme park. So Disneyland, Walt Disney's first site opens in 1955. Club Med, the European travel company in the 1960s. And then on from there, by way of hippie travellers to you know the Greek islands and Ibiza, the party capital for youthful Europe in the 80s and 90s. So all of this are ultimately an expression, yes, of increasing wealth, the ability to do it, the transport, the time, the money, and the places to go, which also require investment. Well, I never would have imagined uh, the connection between the Roman Colosseum and Coney Island, but apparently there is one. Um, But I want to burrow down here a little bit more because most of the examples you're citing in terms of the demand side and partly the supply side are sort of examples from the West. But does that suggest that tourism's uh, kind of this kind of regional local industry or is it a kind should we understand tourism as a universal industry? I mean, when people around the world reach a certain level of income, do they just naturally start spending a portion of it on travel or is this more culturally specific? There are national differences for sure, right? I mean, the mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday stun stereotype is not for nothing, nor is the sort of image of the clueless German tourist wandering around some dangerous American inner city in socks and Birkenstock sandals entirely invented. Um, Mm. These things are real. So there is a sort of like uh, orientalizing often European impulse to travel around and see things for sure. And that has impacted given the way in which the world economy is wired large parts of the world. Um, Europeans famously fight turf wars for beach towel space in Spain and Portugal and have been doing this since the 1960s. Um, But yes, broadly speaking, this is a function of income. And the elephant in the room, to use the cliche of the global travel business right now, is China. It's China, China, China. Uh, There has been an absolutely explosive growth in Tourism from, from, from China, according to the UN's World Tourism Organization, which is a thing uh, which reflects the scale of this industry. Uh, Chinese tourists spent $254 billion overseas in 2019, accounting for almost one-fifth of global tourism spending. And the number of outbound Chinese tourists uh, more than tripled between 2010 and 2020. And the thing about Chinese travelers is that for them, travel is not just a matter of going to places, it's an opportunity to buy. And the result is that Chinese tourists have become the drivers of the high-end luxury business worldwide. And the other really remarkable thing about this is that the overwhelming majority of this is done by one demographic segment in China, and it is young women between the ages of 19 and 29. So that segment of youthful, highly affluent Chinese women are now driving a global industry whose value chain is very European, very centered in Europe, uh, and runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars. Okay, so the world turns on 20-year-old Chinese women. Did not know that either. But this raises the question for me about the countries who are attracting all these tourists. I mean, is tourism a good development strategy for them? Is it a kind of economic trap instead? I mean, do countries that rely on tourism in their 
early stages of development? Do they risk getting stuck there in some way? I mean, it's a fascinating and really important question. And, you know, as somebody who is sort of peripherally involved in the business, you ask yourself that question all the time. I mean, it's worth saying, I think, that it's controversial mainly in rich countries that feel they have a choice. Um, typically, I mean, really, the locus classicus to this entire debate is Venice, um, which in peak season nowadays is totally overrun and much of the local population is displaced by Airbnb lodgings. But you also have to say about Venice that the city as we know it today would simply not exist if it were not for the history of tourism all the way back to the 18th century. In the 18th century, in fact, it had the unenviable reputation as being the capital of sex tourism across Europe. It was the city with the largest percentage of sex workers. Um, For small island countries, you have to ask what the alternative is. and for those working in the industry, the same. For many of the people that I've gotten to know, it's a flexible job. It enables the development of language skills. In relatively closed societies, it can provide access to the outside world for worse and for better. Um, in families we know in Cambodia or Tanzania, it's part of a multi-generational strategy of social mobility. The question is how you turn it into something like a fair exchange that, that generates mobility in a literal sense for both sides, how you avoid it spilling over into naked exploitation be it, for instance, in you know grotesquely unequal sexual exchanges or ruinous destruction of natural environments. I mean, how do you instead turn it into high-value ecotourism or centres for language learning? Or if you're going to have casinos, how do you make sure they generate large tax revenues and well-paid jobs? And, and, and the fact of the matter is, and this is a sort of the circular causation we always have in development economics, is that it's destinations like, say, Cambridge, England or Heidelberg, Germany, that have the best chances of turning tourism in the positive direction, right? Because they have ways to impose congestion charges, hotel taxes. They can impose, as Berlin has done, like equalization on Airbnb rates so they can't continuously undercut the the hotel industry. So that is, in a sense, the tough question. How do you organize local politics to insist that these bargains are fair and generate spillover for the local community. It's chicken and egg, no doubt, because weaker, poorer societies are less well-placed to do this. But those are the bargains that need to be made. Otherwise, even a society as rich as Italy Hmm. can produce a really dysfunctional model of tourism. Interesting. Um, We will leave it there for this week. That was another episode of Ones and Twos. My thanks, as always, to uh, my co-host, Adam Tooze, and listeners. As always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can also tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And also, for this holiday season coming up, Adam was kind enough to come up with some suggested reading for yourself or friends, family members, That's, of course, in addition to Adam's own latest book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. You should definitely buy that one. But be sure to also check out the list he drew up at foreignpolicy.com and then click on the page for the Ones and Twos podcast. So Ones and Twos is written by me, Cameron Abadi, and Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. And the executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back in your feed next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, 
Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.